Well, it's my privilege not to preach this morning. Um, we're very thankful uh, to be able to welcome one of the Ravi Zacharias International Ministries speakers with us this morning, Mrs. Joe Vitale. Uh, Joe and her husband, Vince, uh, live and serve in Oxford, England, uh, where Joe has just finished turning in her PhD paper, and will defend that in January. So as we think of her in the days to come, we will be praying with her for that. So welcome. We're so glad to have you with us this morning, and thanks for sharing. Thank you so much. Yes, please. Um, I would love your prayers for my PhD defense. It really is an absolute joy to be here with all of you this morning. Um, I am obviously, as you can probably tell by the accent, from the UK. Uh, So for those of you who looked at your service sheets this morning and saw the name Joe Vitale and kind of thought to yourselves, you know, this is probably going to be an Italian-American man from New Jersey. I'm sorry for the the confusion. It happens to me a lot. Uh, My husband is an Italian-American and he's called Vince, so that's why. Uh, But actually, while Vince and I were on honeymoon, we had this hypothetical conversation about what kinds of names we might want to call any of our future children. And so Vince suggested to me, well, what about the name Joseph? That's a nice name. To which I replied, no way. We can't call our child Joseph because then he'll get nicknamed Joey Vitali. And that is way too mafia sounding. At which point, Vince just stared at me and began to laugh. And it took me a few seconds to catch on before I exclaimed in horror, Oh no, that's my name. I'm Joey Vitale. I don't look like my name. But I think actually this is something that we do all the time. You know, we make assumptions about people and what they're like before we've ever met them. And simply on the basis of their name or where they're from or maybe their accent or the rumors that we've heard about them. And I think in no case is this more true than when it comes to the rumors that we hear about the God of the Bible. Last month, I was chatting to somebody that I was sitting next to on a plane. And when I told him that I studied the Old Testament, his immediate response was, oh, you like that fire and brimstone stuff, do you? But, you know, I think it's hardly surprising that this has become the kind of reputation of the God of the Bible among so many in our world today. Because this is the view that people like Richard Dawkins, famous atheist in Oxford, are working very hard to present. So Richard Dawkins, having spent some significant time with a thesaurus, he comes up with this definition of the God of the Old Testament. He says this. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a genocidal, megalomaniacal, sodomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Tell us how you really feel, Richard. You know, I think it feels like everywhere we go these days, time and again, as Christians, we come up against these kind of attacks against the character of the Christian God. And it's not only those outside of the church who are wrestling with what the Bible reveals to us about God, but Christians struggle with this as well. I recently came across an article written by a Christian to atheists 
in which this Christian was basically arguing that if you want to challenge Christianity, then don't focus on issues like the reliability of the Bible or the evidence for the resurrection or maybe even the problem of evil. Because actually Christians have some very strong responses to these kind of questions. But instead, this journalist was arguing that if you want to make a Christian really uncomfortable, then you should either ask them about warfare in the Old Testament or the topic of hell in the New Testament. And when I read this article, it didn't surprise me that the writer had put those two topics side by side, warfare and hell. Because actually, they're two different sides to the same fundamental challenge, which is this. If God is supposed to be a God of love, then why does he seem to go around judging everybody? After all, aren't those two characteristics inherently contradictory? It's a good question to ask, and it's a serious challenge for us to engage with as Christians, because from the beginning to the end of the Bible, as I know you're studying in your series at the moment, we see these two threads, the love of God and the judgment of God running right alongside one another. But how can they possibly be connected? How do they relate? What on earth do love and judgment have in common? With our time together this morning, I want to take firstly a closer look at the love of God and then the judgment of God and then to consider why these two attributes might belong together. But when it comes to talking about love, the difficulty that we face in our 21st century world is that while everybody seems to be searching for love, nobody is quite sure what it is. You know, last year in the UK in 2014, the number one question that people most frequently typed into Google's search engine was this question, what is love? And I actually find that remarkable. You know, it may not be a question that people will openly admit to be asking, but at the end of the day, when they're alone in their homes at the computer, This is the question that people are secretly and desperately searching for an answer for. What is love? And in some ways, it's not surprising that many are asking this question because so many of our examples and definitions of love that we encounter in the world are so deeply unsatisfying. You know, we live in a society that tells us that love is something that we have to earn, that our worth is determined by our performance, and we're only valuable or lovable to the extent that we measure up to the expectations that our society or our parents or our spouse or our boss or our friends have placed upon us. And so we get caught up in this endless cycle of trying to impress other people with how successful we are or how smart we are or how popular or how funny or how beautiful. Because deep down, we just fear rejection. I think this is demonstrated by the way that we talk about other people's relationships. You know, we'll say things like, he is way out of her league. Or perhaps we might say, he was really punching above his weight when he got her to marry him. 
which is kind of ironic because when it comes to God, our culture struggles to reconcile the idea of love and judgment as having anything to do with each other. And yet in our own lives, we are constantly judging both other people and ourselves to determine whether we meet the right criteria for love. But if this is how relationships work, then it's no wonder that these days fewer and fewer people are getting married. And of those who do, more and more relationships end in divorce. Because if love is about deserving, then what happens when your partner disappoints you or lets you down? And if the better you are, the more lovable you are, then what happens if down the line your partner meets someone more wealthy or more beautiful or more anything than you? It's an extremely depressing picture, isn't it? And yet there's something in us that cries out against resigning ourselves to this transient, transactional model of love. Something that asks, is that really all there is? You know, reflecting on the common human experience, the writer and professor C.S. Lewis concludes that if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, then the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. According to Christianity, C.S. Lewis has it exactly right. That it's completely natural to long for a love that nothing in this world can satisfy. Because Christianity says that you were made for a love that is bigger than anything this world has to offer. Christianity says that you were made by God and for God. And that this God is in his very nature, love itself. What is love? God is love. According to the Bible, the love that God has for you is love that is at its very best. A love that is so different to the way that our world around us loves. Perhaps some of you here today have been living under the impression that the central teaching of Christianity is this. If you're good enough for God, then God will love you. But in actual fact, Christianity says something very different to this. Because Christians worship a God who tells us that he loves us while we are still sinners which means that God's love for you doesn't depend on how well behaved you are. In fact, God's love for you doesn't even rely on you loving him back. With God, you never have to wake up in the morning and wonder if he's still into you, because he always will be. And this love is not just a vague, indifferent, polite sort of love. Instead, it's a love that is relentlessly determined and unfailingly persistent. A few years ago, one of my good friends had all but given up on relationships because she'd just been through disappointment one too many times. And around that time, she moved to the city of Florence in Italy to write a book out there. But while she was there, a few months into her trip, she suddenly met this really great guy who seemed quite interested in her. But she was just careful to keep her distance and putting up a lot of barriers because she didn't want to get hurt again. But then one morning, while she was getting her usual cappuccino in her favorite Italian coffee shop, the waiter brought over to her a beautiful Gerber daisy, which were her favorite flower. And from then on, several times every week, whenever she'd go to her favorite local restaurants or coffee shops, a stranger would come over to her and deliver her another one of these Gerber daisies. 
And then even when she moved back from Florence to California, where she's from, and she returned to her local Starbucks, the very first morning that she walked in the door, she was handed a Gerber daisy by one of the staff. Literally everywhere she went, these daisies kept appearing. Gentlemen in the room, I hope that you're taking notes, by the way, because this is a really good way to impress a lady. But you know, this man, he wasn't forceful with her. He didn't make her do anything that she didn't want to do, but neither did he give up on her. He was persistent. He went out of his way to show her day in and day out that he was thinking about her, that he desired her, and that he thought she was worth pursuing. And it's this kind of persistent love that we see consistently displayed from the beginning to the end of the Bible. A divine love that will not quit. In one of the stories Jesus tells, he describes God as like a shepherd who's lost one single sheep out of a hundred. And you know, you'd think that if you'd managed to keep hold of 99 sheep, you'd feel pretty good about that job. And yet this shepherd refuses to rest until he finds that single lost sheep. He searches high and low, and he won't give up until he brings it home. This is a God who is fierce in his pursuit, and he will never give up on you. So, so far, so good, right? You know, it all sounds pretty great, this idea of divine love. But tragically, there is a problem with this picture of God's love, and the problem is us. If you're someone here today who's not yet sure what you believe about God, then I think it's worth asking yourself the following question. If Christianity were true, would you want it to be? And if God were real, would you want to know him? Because for many of us, it's not an easy question to answer. Because honestly, we're more comfortable as we are. Thank you very much. We like being boss of our own lives, and we're quite happy doing our own thing. The atheist philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche once summed it up well when he said this, If there is a God, how can I bear not to be him? You know, this is partly why so many human relationships fail, because to really love someone means to put them before yourself. And a lot of the time, we don't want to put anyone before ourselves. We're much better at self-love. And Christianity calls this sin, caring more about yourself than God or anybody else, and therefore living in a selfish way that leads to us damaging other people by our desires, our choices, our words, and our actions. But for some of you here today, Christianity's diagnosis of the human condition as sinful may all just seem a bit too doom and gloom. After all, when it comes down to it, most of us are pretty good, right? So what is the big deal? Last year, I was speaking at a dinner party at a little village in England. And afterwards, an elderly lady who'd been attending church every Sunday of her life came up to me looking extremely cross. And then she pointed her finger right in my face and she yelled at me, I'll have you know, I've never sinned a day in my life. And Vince and I realized how ingrained this kind of perspective has become in our culture when as an American, he had to take his citizenship test to stay in the UK, which is really hard, by the way. I took 15 practice tests. 
and I only managed to pass two of them. So apparently I'm not British enough to live in my own country. But in the paperwork, one of the questions that he had to answer yes to in order to be allowed to stay in England was the following question. Have you or any dependents who are applying with you ever engaged in any other activities which might indicate that you may not be considered to be persons of good character? Isn't that crazy? It was basically asking him to say that he'd never done anything wrong. And if he ticked yes, he would be deported. Apparently, everyone in England is very well behaved. But in the 21st century, we are well practiced at convincing ourselves of our basic goodness. And the reason for this is because, as I said earlier, we're so used to judging ourselves against each other, against other human beings. And of course, when we do that, you can always find somebody else who looks worse than you. And you can point the finger at them and say, sin is their problem, not mine. But when we judge this way, we've made a serious miscalculation because the standard that we're being held to and by which we will be judged is not the behavior of other people, but it's the standard of a perfect God himself. And when we hold our life up against his life, we suddenly find that none of us are looking too good. One Russian author who served in a Soviet labor camp for eight years in the 1940s, he says it this way. If only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Now, if God were to take a look into each of our hearts this morning, what would he find there? And what if he took what he found, every shameful thought and desire from every day of your life, and he put it up on these screens for all the rest of us to watch here this morning? It's not a comfortable thought, is it? You know, as much as we try to deny it, we just can't get around the fact that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I was recently reading a book of English nursery rhymes of children's poems to my two-year-old goddaughter who's called Caris, which means grace. And then we came across one nursery rhyme, which is called Humpty Dumpty. And I don't know how many of you guys actually know this one. Um, it's, it's not, you know, that complicated. It's basically about an egg, an egg that sits on a wall and then it falls off the wall and that's the end of the story. Uh, so yeah, not very sophisticated in terms of the plot line, but actually the message I found as I read it again is quite profound. And this is how it goes. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. And all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty together again. The end. It's quite brutal, isn't it? I can't believe that that is a story for two-year-old children. But the truth is, it's quite striking. And as I read it for the first time in my life, it kind of hit home for me that actually Humpty Dumpty is a story about each one of us. You know, we've all fallen off the wall And we're all lying in pieces 
And as hard as we may try, nobody can put us back together again. Through our sinfulness, we've broken relationship with God. We've broken relationship with other people. And in turn, we've broken ourselves. And as if things couldn't get any worse, because we've sinned, God has to judge us. Why, you may ask, why does God have to judge us? The answer is because he loves us. That might seem like a very bizarre thing for me to say, because as I said at the beginning, we usually think of love and judgment as opposites. If God is so loving, why doesn't he just forgive everybody? Isn't that what we've been taught to do all of our lives ever since we were children? So why then can't God practice what he preaches? You know, and I think this is a question that I used to struggle with a lot myself until something happened several years ago that radically changed my thinking on this whole issue. And that event was the terrible uh, trauma of seeing uh, my best, best friend go through the tragedy of being raped. And, you know, seeing her deal with the consequences of something that awful, seeing the fear that she has to live with every day and the guilt and shame that she feels for something she has no reason to feel guilty for and the way that she began to hate her own body and punish herself by not eating and the way that she would go from one messed up relationship to another because ever since that day, she cannot cope with the idea of intimacy. You know, there are just no words to describe the horror of that or how devastated and angry I felt seeing her that way and how badly I wanted the man who did this to her and who got away with it to be held accountable for what he had done and to receive judgment. And that's when I realized that if I love my friends enough that I cannot stand to see them wronged and mistreated, then how much more frustrated would a God who loves each one of us more than we can possibly imagine be when we hurt one another? You know, some of you here today have been treated very badly. And that matters to God We think of love and judgment as opposites, but actually the two go hand in hand. It's precisely because God loves each one of us so much. There must be judgment for the ways that we wrong each other. Because if he didn't judge, he'd be saying that he doesn't care about what we've done to each other and what has been done to us. And I think to those of us who've never been the victims of serious injustice, this idea of judgment can maybe seem quite severe. But to the billions of people around the world who are victims of the most brutal forms of injustice every single day, the belief that one day God will ensure justice by judging the world is the very hope that they cling to. As they cry out to God the very same question that Abraham asks in Genesis 19. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The theologian Miroslav Wolf puts it this way. I used to think that anger was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond anger? 
But my last resistance to this idea of God's anger was a casualty of the war in former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out, some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. How did God react to the carnage? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's anger, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't angry at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't angry in spite of being love. God is angry because God is love. And yet, if we want justice for others and for ourselves, then we have to be willing to face justice ourselves as well. And so what should a loving God do? Because it kind of seems like we've put him in a bit of an impossible situation. He loves each one of us so much that he cannot stand to see us be the victims of injustice. And therefore, he has to judge us. But if he judges us as we deserve, then we will have a serious penalty to pay for our sin. And he cannot stand to see us pay that penalty because the wages of sin, the Bible tells us, is death. Looked at this way, it just seems like a really impossible situation. By our own actions, we've sabotaged any possibility of relationship with the God that we were made for. But thankfully, nothing is impossible for God. The writer Ellis Potter has noted that actually there's one really important line missing from that children's nursery rhyme, Humpty Dumpty. And so he writes it in and the line is this, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall, Humpty Dumpty had a great fall, all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty together again, but the king could the king could. You know, I wonder what someone would have to do to prove that they really loved you. Do they buy you dinner? Do they sit through hours of watching baseball with you, even when they don't have a clue what the rules are and they keep accidentally cheering for the wrong team? Do they look after you when you're sick? Do they share their bank account with you? You know, usually the more they're willing to give up for you, the more you can be sure of their love. It would be really hard to doubt someone's love for you if they willingly took a bullet for you. And at the heart of the Christian message, this is exactly what we find. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And just get your head around that for a second, because it's absolutely mind-blowing. You know, the same God who created the universe is strung up on a cross, bleeding and gasping for breath. You know, at Christmas, we celebrate Jesus' birth by hanging lights from a tree. At the cross, the light of the world was hung from a tree. 
because this was the only way for God to bring an end to our darkness. In the United States, they have a law that's called the statute of limitations. And what this means is that if a person who's committed a certain crime is not caught within a set period of time, then once that time has lapsed, they can no longer be convicted of that crime, even if they were the ones who actually committed it. And yet, even though we've been caught red-handed in an extravagant act of mercy. At the cross, Jesus makes available to every one of us a divine statute of limitations, effective immediately. And it's in this act that we see the perfect love and the perfect justice of God perfectly displayed. As the same God who is the judge of all the world refuses to condemn us to the fate we deserve for our sins. Instead, God condemns himself In our place, Jesus takes our sentence. He literally switches places with us and suffers the punishment so that we do not have to pay the price. Have you ever heard of a love like this? I don't know of anything else like it. As one writer says, the world takes us to a silver screen on which flickering images of passion and romance play. And as we watch, the world says, This is love. God takes us to the foot of a tree on which a naked and bloodied man hangs and says, this is love. And in return, the only man who never sinned gives us his innocent status so that when God looks at us, he no longer sees our guilt. Instead, because of Jesus, he sees a completely new person, an innocent person, a person freed from shame. The Bible describes this experience of becoming a Christian as as being made a new creation. And Jesus himself says, I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. This is the most incredible Christmas gift imaginable. And all we have to do to receive it is to say sorry for our sin and accept Jesus' death on our behalf. And then we're forgiven and we're freed and our lives are transformed forever. But you know, although the response required of us is so simple, for many of us, I think actually this can be the hardest thing of all to believe. You know, over the years, I've come to a place where I don't doubt that Jesus is the son of God. And I believe with all my heart that God raised him from the dead. But forgiveness for someone like me, no condemnation for me, no more beating myself up about the poor choices that I made this morning or yesterday or three years ago or a decade ago. You know, I met my husband Vince at a time in my life when I was struggling with a lot of guilt and shame over bad decisions that I'd made in the past. And I just felt so unworthy of love. And I was convinced that if Vince knew the truth about me, then he definitely wouldn't want to be with me. And so preferring to get dumped sooner rather than later, I decided just to tell him about my past mistakes before our relationship got too serious. But as I told him how I was so ashamed that I actually couldn't even look him in the eye, and I just stared at the floor and I just cried and cried. But after I'd finished speaking, Vince just said very gently, Joe, look at me. 
And I couldn't bear to because I was terrified that when I looked into his eyes, what I would see would be condemnation or anger or disappointment. But then he said to me again, Joe, look at me. And then he took my face in his hands and he raised it until we were looking eye to eye. And then he said this to me, that is not who you are anymore. That is not who you are anymore. And to my absolute astonishment, I saw no judgment there. All I saw was compassion and love. You know, sometimes we can be so terrified to look at God because we're afraid of what we might see in his eyes. Judgment, disappointment, rejection. But when we accept Jesus' death on our behalf, then at the cross, it's as if God takes our face in his hands and he raises it until we're looking at him eye to eye. And then he says over each one of us, that is not who you are anymore. For some of you here today, this may be the first time that this is really sinking in for you, that actually the life that you're living doesn't look anything like the sort of selfless, beautiful life of love that you were created to live. Others of you here may have spent your whole lives trying to prove yourself and beating yourself up about past mistakes and deep down just believing that you will never be enough and you will always be unworthy of love. But whatever the case, because of Jesus, there's nothing that anyone could do or anything that you will ever do or have done that could put you beyond God's reach. There's literally nothing that would make him love you less. And today, at this very moment this morning, God is offering you a love like no other. A love that is based not on what you deserve, but on the grace of God. A love that is for you that is relentless in its pursuit of you, that never gives up, never calls it quits, never fails. And a love that has literally conquered death so that you could know a love that lasts forever. You know, you could spend your whole life searching for a love like this, and many people do, but you'll never find it anywhere else. Earlier, I asked the question, if God were real, Would you want to know him? And maybe some of you aren't ready to answer that question today. But there may be others of you here who do want to answer it. And who today want to say, yes, God, I want to know you. And if that is you, then I urge you, don't put it off any longer. Don't miss out for a second on this unbelievable relationship that God is offering to you. And so I'm going to give you the opportunity to respond to that invitation and to receive that gift right now. And I'm going to do that by praying a prayer. And if this is something that you would like to pray, then I just invite you just to echo it with me in your hearts. So that's just all. Just be silent for a moment and then I will pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a good God, a God who is completely committed to justice, 
and completely committed to love. I thank you that you loved me so much that you not only came to earth to live among us, but you even came to die for me. Thank you that you love me so much that there is no length that you wouldn't go to. And I'm so sorry for running away from relationship with you, for sinning against you and for wounding others. Please, God, would you forgive me? Thank you that at the cross you traded places with me and you took my sin on yourself and you bore the punishment so that I could be free and so that I could move from death into a new life with you. And today, God, I want to step into that life, Lord, and I want to know the love that I was made for. Please, would you come into my life and would you show me how to love you? as you've already loved me. Amen. Well, thank you so much for listening. And I just want to invite you, if that was something you did pray today, either for the first time or maybe for the first time in a really long time, then at the end of the service, I'll be around. And I know that uh, Pastor Mike will be around and and some of the elders. So please do just come and tell somebody if that's a decision you've made. I know they'd love to talk to you and just encourage you as well. But thank you very much for listening.